Good morning. I'm glad to be with y'all. Turn to Genesis 3.8 while I'm saying good morning. Uh, I love to get the opportunity to speak like this. Um, I'm grateful to Ryan and to the session for giving me this honor, this trust, to, get to speak to you in this capacity. Um, my name is John Cox. I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, and I did a parenting conference for you guys this morning, I mean this weekend. Those of you who went to the parenting conference, you are bound to be tired of hearing me speak by now, you know? It's been known to happen. A, wonder, a woman told me that she had been listening to my podcast and my stuff in her car for a few days, and finally her little girl in the back seat just says, Mommy, I'm tired of listening to that man talk. Does he sing? Is there anything else, you know? Gratefully, he does not sing, okay? You can be thankful for that. Um, <laughs> but our conference was all about sort of the practical psychology, in a sense, and also God's way, I think, of looking at parenting, uh, family relationships, and, and all that. When I get the opportunity to bring God's Word to speak to you in this kind of a context, I don't do psychology from the pulpit, um, we're going to shift gears a little bit here. It's kind of a little policy of mine. Psychology, those dynamics, that's my job. This is my love. I get to be with you now in something with someone who I love. What I want to do with you this morning is simply worship together. Uh, I have a very different goal than I would at a conference, so to speak. It, it, it's simple. It's like this. There, there's this little scene in in uh, John 12, where these Greeks come to the disciples and they say, sir, we would like to see Jesus. And that's simply my goal. This sermon's not going to have a lot of application, you know, 10 steps for you to go be a better Christian this week. Um, we were practical all weekend with the conference. All I want to do this week, this, this morning, is pull back the veil a little bit and remind you of the heart of your God to remind you how wonderful He really is. And then I'll let His Spirit deal with what sort of application that might have in your own life. But I want to show you His heart for you. Those of you who may not know Him here this morning, you, you probably have some gut sense of what you think God is, is like. I want to give you my best, my best sense of what I believe He tells us that He is like in Scripture. For those of you who do know him here this morning, I want to remind you of his heart for you. I want to remind you of who you're dealing with here. And I'm going to do that by telling you a story. I um, love stories. When I, when I preach, I don't do heavy theology or exegesis from the pulpit. I just like telling Bible stories, all right? I mean, I still use those, you know, those black felt Sunday school felt boards, you know? Yeah, Okay. Um, those were, I'd still do that, still do that if I could, because, you know, they were, the, they were the best. But I want to tell you a story about how God came to love us and to give to us. The Bible is actually a lot of stories, but it's all really one story, one story woven into the whole of Scripture. We call it the covenant of grace, but it is the story of how God went about beautifully unfolding and deepening and enriching, enriching the, the tale of how he was going to bring us back to himself. And you can follow that story all through Scripture. High points being Noah and Abram and Moses and the law and prophets and David and, and of course, Christ. 
But this morning, I'm going to tell you the first story. I'm going to tell you how God responded to the fall with Adam and Eve. Let's look at the story. Genesis 3.8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, curse to you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed or offspring and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise his heel. Now skipping down to Genesis 3.20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. These are his words to us. So that's our story this morning. It's kind of a downer, right? It's full of all this curses and shame and, and trouble. But it wasn't always like that. About Three chapters earlier, things were actually pretty great. God was busy. Uh, you know, the old gospel preacher who said, you know, the Lord is a busy, busy man. And he, what he was busy doing was creating a, a wonderful world for his children, an amazing world, a world that was full of blessings for them. He wanted them to have deep, intimate, connected relationships. He wanted them to have meaningful work. He implanted into that rich rest all of this in provision for the deepest needs of his creatures, okay? The only hitch was this. In order to be such a blessed creature under this God who created these wonders, you had to stay a creature, all right? I don't want to lose you already in the sermon. Going too fast, to be blessed as a creature, you kind of had to be a creature, okay? Creatures don't make the rules. Creatures don't get to take what they want. Creatures don't get to sit in the big chair. That belongs only to God, not to his creatures. His creatures are under him. Get it? Creatures, not God. That's one of the things that the tree meant. When God told Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree, to follow his way, what he was saying in essence is, if you wait on me, I will provide everything that you need. But if you take 
If you take matters into your own hands, if you leave from being under me, you will, be, you will leave from being under my care. You will lose me and you will lose everything else. And we all know what happens next, right? Along came a spider and sat down beside her and into this scene comes the serpent, right? And what's the serpent's message? His message is actually just the opposite of God's way. God's way is you follow me and I will provide for you. And, and Satan's message is if you wait on God, you will go without. Trust me here, okay? In other words, God wants to deprive you. He will not provide for you. You must, you must, you must take. Take what's yours. I mean, come on. And Adam and Eve fall for this, like we all do every time we sin, technically. And they break the covenant of creation. And they violate God's way and his provision, and they betray him. Now, what we got here at this point is cosmic treason, boys and girls, okay? And even though there's only one commandment so far in the world, it's a capital crime, and the sentence is death, and the world hangs in the balance. What's going to happen? Well, I want to look at the story from a little bit different perspective than it's usually told, all right? I mean, usually when people tell this story, they talk about all the nasty stuff that's about to happen because of, of the sin, right? All right? And some pretty, pretty bad stuff's about to unfold. I mean, we're about to get a lot of curses. I mean, man is going to be cursed at the level of his work. It's going to become burdensome and painful and futile. Ultimately, he's going to die Woman is going to be cursed at the level of her relationships with her children, with her husband. And they're both, to top it all off, under the condemnation of God eternally. All right? So these are curses. This is all part of that death that God said would come if they left him. But I'm thinking we all know a lot about sin, death, and curses, right? We're Presbyterians. We talk about that stuff all the time, right? I thought, let's, let's have a little bit different slant on this, all right? So, yeah, there are curses and condemnation and a lot of dread that's about to come. But also, here in Genesis 3, as, as, as regards our focus, the heart of God, we're going to see some of the most marvelous and gracious things that God ever does. This morning, we're going to look at the good things that happen after the fall at Eden. And trust me, that's not just because I have such a sunny disposition, all right? It's because really, literally, legitimately, realistically, this encounter we're going to look into with God and Adam and Eve is packed with loving, gracious covenant gifts to them and to us. We're going to see in the story the beginning rumors of our salvation. God is, God is going to respond to all this death by bringing life. So I want to look at five ways in which God is going to bless them and us in this post-fall Eden. Number one, <clears throat> what is the first thing that God does after Adam and Eve break off his relationship, their relationship with him? He looks for them. Blessing number one. Okay, maybe the sweetest words in all of Scripture, Genesis 3, 9. He says, where are you? I mean, here's God, all right? He's the injured party, remember? Now, I don't know about you, but when someone's hurt me, when someone's left me, mm -mm, it's not moi's job to come looking to make it better. I mean, what do we do? 
right? Say you have a group of friends and you go on vacation every year, but this year you don't hear from them. But then you start seeing these Instagram pictures of them all at the beach, you know, selfies, you know, from the vacation spot without you. What do you do? How do you feel? You get in the car and go down there to their vacation spot and knock on the door and go, hey guys, what's going on? I want to be with y'all. No, we write them off. Fine, yeah. You know, next time we see them, we're like, oh, hey. You know, in other words, I ain't fixing this, okay? But instead, here's God, and all he has done is create a very good place for his beloved children, and they immediately betray him. But instead of blowing up the world, which would be his right, he comes looking for them. Where are you? And you can see him do this through the rest of Scripture. I mean, listen to him in the prophets. He's this aggressive, pursuing husband, lover, seeking his bride, wounded by her infidelity. When he says things in the prophets like, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's not just a statement of judgment. That's a statement of longing, of sorrow. He's saying, I don't just want you and your religious talk. Where's your heart? And he continues with this. Who is it who will not give up? He looks for the the lost sheep. Who was it who, as Ryan mentioned a minute ago, even while we were yet sinners died for us, he looks for us. The most natural thing in the world about being a human is when someone hurts us, we want to hurt back, we want to withdraw, we want to get even. God doesn't do this. He looks for you. Do you ever get afraid of whether God will accept you? Does he want me? You know, even if I asked do you want me? Would God go, yes, come here? I mean, as, as petty and selfish and deceitful or critical as I am, does he want me? Well, here's our answer. He comes after us. Even before we ask, where are you? He says, this is who he is. Now, Adam's answer to his question, where are you, does not offer us a lot of encouragement here. God says, where are you? And and Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, which must have been an interesting sound. But he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So Adam says he's afraid, and he runs away. Why? What's going on with old Adam? What's he experiencing? Well, I'm a licensed mental health professional. You can ask me. Technically, what's happening with Adam is all of a sudden he's realized his vulnerability, his nakedness. He's exposed. Technically speaking, psychologically, he is feeling shame, all right? He's no longer naked and not ashamed anymore, right? Instead, they're filled with that blistering kind of fear and humiliation that you feel. You know those times where you go, you know, what have I done? So he's gone, man. They're they're both gone. They're out of here. Now, God knew. He's smart, right? God knew that in their created state, they could not be self-condemning. God knew that something must be wrong. They would not know about shame and fear and nakedness and hiding in their created state unless something had happened. I mean, after all, if you don't have the knowledge of good and evil, 
i.e. the ability to judge, you can't judge, right? Yourself or anyone else. Not rocket surgery. I mean, I think that if you had asked Adam before the fall, hey, Adam, is Eve a good wife? I think he would have looked at you a little confused. He doesn't know how to judge yet, right? I think he would have said, well, uh, she's Eve. I love her. She loves me. And then I think he would have said, wait a minute. God's always calling things good or not good or very good. Why don't you ask him? He'll be around in the cool of the day to walk with us. And he is the only righteous judge, not me. Ask him. You see the realistic problem with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil not just the obedience problem. Sometimes we make this stuff too religious, you know? The experiential knowledge of, and we get, here I am talking psychology, sorry. The experiential knowledge of good and evil, in other words, the ability to judge, is something that God wanted to protect us from. He knew it would kill us to have it. Doesn't it kill you? Doesn't it wreck your life every day to live in judgment or feel afraid of being criticized or judging other people or insecurity? It destroys us. It's one of the reasons God wanted to protect us from it. So anyway, God knows now, here in Adam's answer, that if they're judging, you know, something's wrong. Houston, we got a problem, okay? So God says, who told you you were naked? In other words... How did you become aware of vulnerability and shame unless you learned about condemnation and judgment from the tree? Hmm? And so at that point, Adam does what any self-respecting husband would do. He blames his wife. You know? Actually, he blames his wife and God in the same sentence, which is pretty impressive. He's like, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. I mean, it's a two-for-one shamer deal in one sentence, which I'm thinking is pretty good for your first day as a sinner. I mean, he's taken right to this, guys. It's like, you know, hitting a double in the big leagues as a rookie. You know, he's a natural. Anyway, Eve blames it on the snake, and ironically, somehow the Satan himself is the only person here who, you know, takes it like a man and doesn't blame anybody. <laughs> but anyway, God begins his maledictions and his curses now by addressing the serpent. Okay, so a pretty big cosmic shift took place in the universe about 10 verses earlier with the sin, right? Pretty big shift. But in this interaction that's about to occur, we're going to see a shift that's just about as big because the very words that God is going to use to pronounce the curse on the serpent are also going to be the very words that are going to ignite our redemption. In fact, this curse is so important that it's been given a name by theologians. You know how theologians like to name stuff? They call this the Proto-Evangelium. Which, when I was like a 22-year-old kid in seminary, always sounded to me like some kind of a death ray in a cheesy science fiction movie, you know? Prepare to fire the Proto-Evangelium, you know? It works, right? <laughs> but think about it. Root word proto, what's the prototype of something? The first version of something? The first version of the Evangelium? The first version of the gospel? Guys, 
Our God is such that in his first blush upon encountering our sin, he's already formulating a prototype of the rescue plan. It's just a teaser here, like those movie trailer teasers, but the Protoevangelium, it's the first rumor of our salvation. Let's look at it again, Genesis 3.15. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Some of your Bibles will say offspring. He shall crush you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's it. The whole redemptive universe packed into four lines. Let's unpack it. What's the first thing that God says he'll do here? And it'll be our second post-fall blessing. He comes looking for us. What's the next thing he does? The first thing he says in the Proto-Evangelium is, he says, I will put enmity. Now, what does that mean? Why does enmity need to be put? And why is that such a blessing? Well, think about it like this. Currently, as it stands in our story, what is the present status of the relationship between the woman and the serpent? I mean, if you have God's way over here and Satan's way over here, who is the woman and all of her offspring with? See, at this point in history, Eve and her offspring, her seed, raise your hand, us, we're friends with the serpent. We're cosmic traitors. We're hanging out with him. We've chosen sides. We're his. We chose that at the tree, okay? But God does this wonderful thing. He gives this wonderful gift. He declares that he will initiate a change in relational status between us and the serpent. He says no longer will there be friendship between my people and Satan. There will be enmity, hatred, deep-seated ill will. And not only will there be enmity and hatred, there will be an enmity and hatred that is present by the very act and design of God himself. I will put enmity. In other words, he is saying, you can't have them, they're mine. What an act of grace and love. He says, I will personally destroy your affection for the evil one. I'll make you enemies. My friends, don't you experience this? Don't you look at areas of, of, your, of sin in your life and hate them? Don't you often wish you did not act the way you do? Don't you feel kind of just heartbroken and defeated sometimes at how much you can feel controlled by the sin in your life? If you do, this passage says, take heart. Romans 7 talks about this. Remember what Paul says in Romans 7? And I think when he says it, he's winking back at this promise. What does Paul say? He says, the thing I wish I do, I do not do. In fact, I do the very thing I what? I hate. Get it? It worked. It means that if you share Paul's Romans 7 experience and struggling with your sin and hating your sinfulness, it means that the Spirit of God is alive inside of you, pouring enmity on that sin, pouring hatred on it. It means He is at work in you even now to bring you back to Himself. 
My friends, I think this is God's earliest sign of his regeneration in our hearts, altering our tastes toward him, bringing us home. Blessing number two. Now, how's he going to pull this whole changing loyalties thing off? Blessing number three. Well, next in the Proto-Evangelion, we're going to get kind of a plan of redemption. In other words, how's it going to actually work? I'll explain it to you. I was an English major in terms of, in addition to being a psychology major. And there's a sense in which you could say that, that our eternal salvation hinges on simple grammar. All right? Let me explain it to you. When God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, what he's talking about is plural groups. The group of the offspring of the woman and the group of the offspring of Satan. Okay? But then, in the next verse, the antecedent, see, English major, the antecedent of the word seed changes number grammatically from plural to singular, and hope dawns again on planet earth. All of a sudden, seed no longer refers to a group. In the next line, seed refers to an individual. He shall crush you on the head, and you will bruise him on the heel. See what God is saying? He's already explaining how our salvation will take place. God is saying that in order for the seed plural to be saved, a seed singular is going to have to come, a he. And he will do battle with the serpent. And though the serpent will wound him, ultimately the seed of the woman will destroy the serpent. Get it? This really is the pre-evangelism. Christ already promised, you know, three chapters into the Bible, God's promising a redeemer, someone to destroy the destroyer. Christ already here, five pages in. God promises the seed will come. If you keep reading Genesis, you'll see some of the great figures of the Bible already looking for this one God promise. They took this promise seriously. They remembered it. Um, not many chapters later, um, uh, Eve names her third son Seth, and she says, perhaps this one is another seed, same Hebrew word, Zerah, is another seed whom God has appointed. She's wondering, could this be the one who's going to, I mean, it's kind of poignant, like who's going to come and restore this which we have all broken a couple of chapters later, you have Noah's dad names him Noah because he says maybe this one will give us rest from the curse. Noah's name means rest, all right? Anyway, they heard what God was promising. They took it seriously. So he looks for us. He puts enmity between us and the enemy. He promises a redeemer, but he still didn't finish loving us here. We got two more amazing blessings yet to come. Number four. Remember the first effect of the fall? Remember the first result of Adam and Eve's sin? That humiliating self-consciousness, that shame that made them want to hide. It used to be safe to be naked and not ashamed. And now, as a direct consequence of eating of the tree, they want to hide. They feel exposed. They feel humiliated. They feel ashamed. So what did they do? They made themselves clothes out of fig leaves. That's a great plan. I like that plan. You ever touched a fig leaf? They're kind of 
fizzy and fuzzy and prickly, and we're just not going to go there, okay? Nobody ever said sin makes you smart, all right? So, now, if I was God and my rebellious people had turned from me in this way and now run away and now they're trying to hide in this kind of ridiculous manner, my response would be to snatch those fig leaves off and go, uh-uh-uh, no way. You reap this life of shame and you're going to be shamed for it. But what is God's response? God sees that they've destroyed his world. They see that they have hurt him. They see that they're hiding because of their shame. And the loving father makes his children better clothes. Lesson number four, Genesis 3, 21. And Yahweh made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In other words, instead of exposing them to the full blast of judgment and shame, he's already saying, let me protect you. Let me hide you. You want to hide? Hide in me. This is who he is. And what could be more comforting to hear? I mean, we live with shame. I want to hide. I don't want people to really know me. I hide from myself. I hide from God, sure. But God says all of your shame and all of your badness is covered by me. But I got to ask a question at this point. Where do you get the animal skins? We think about the fact that to cover Adam and Eve's shame, there already had to be a shedding of blood in the Garden of Eden. Someone else had to die to cover them. I'm, I'm convicted at how easily and quickly I run back to God. Yeah, Lord, I've sinned again. You forgive me again. You know, you got a lot of that, right? You know, and, and I forget this cost that lies just behind the scenes. Yeah, he covers his children, but he covers his children with the blood of another. Ultimately, it will be his own. This is who he is. But he's still not finished blessing us yet. Because you see, there was another tree. And there's this chilling moment to me in the story in Genesis 3, 22 and following, where God essentially says to himself... He says, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever, dot, dot, dot. It's like he doesn't even finish the sentence, all right? It's like when you realize you don't see your three-year-old and the back door is open and the back door leads to the pool. You don't finish your sentence, you just drop and run, okay? And we're told immediately, it says, he then drove the man out and at the east gate of, of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. What does this mean? Well, people speculate, but some commentators have said this, and I love it, and I want you to try it on, but big surprise, I'm going to stretch you a little bit. Think about it. Think about what we got here. We've got broken relationships. We've got fear, shame, alienation. We've got the created order that's destroyed. And we've got Adam and Eve now imprisoned in a world in which Paul will later say a world that groans. Where sin destroys and alienates and shames and isolates. And think for a minute. 
the worst thing that could possibly happen at this point in history would be for somehow them to be condemned to live forever in this world where they've destroyed God's way, where they are separated from Him. In other words, the worst thing that could ever happen, God suddenly, quote, realizes it, is that they might in their sinful state come and take of the tree of life and live forever, forever separated, imprisoned in a world apart from God. So God gives this very strange final gift here. He made sure that they would never get to the tree of life and live forever. He makes sure that we can die. Death haunts us. My brother died 33 years ago as a young man, and it still scars our family. It's an obscenity. And it'll be the last enemy conquered. It truly is an enemy. But I want you to try to add to the way that you look at death because of this passage. One of the things that I think is happening here is that though death is the ultimate enemy, God comes in in this moment and kind of bends the rules a little bit. He's going to beat death at its own game. God intervenes here in a sense to say, though death is going to do its terrible work, because of the story I'm creating, it's not just going to be the end of your life. It's going to ultimately be something that frees you to be with him as he always intended because of our salvation, because of the story he's creating, because of the seed of the woman he's promising, death is no longer our end. It's our gateway. Death, where is your sting? Now it's a veil. It's a way home. Blessing number five. So we can't go back to Eden now, all right? The place where God is, Eden, the garden, the place where God is was sealed and protected and guarded by cherubim. We have flaming swords that point every direction. Cherubim are not going to let anyone in. But Eden is also protected by cherubim just like we see somewhere else. In the temple of Israel, the Holy of Holies was the most sacred chamber. It was the place where God was. And it contained the Ark of the Covenant and the law and the, the, the altar and the holy presence of God himself. And even the high priest could only go in the Holy of Holies one day of year on the Day of Atonement. And this Holy of Holies, the place where God was, was separated, guarded, blocked from the rest of the temple and certainly from the people by a, by a barrier a great veil, a curtain that stood as a wall between the people and the most holy place, the people and the place where God was. A barrier to Eden, if you will, a barrier to enter back where God is. And do you know what that veil looked like? It's described in Exodus 26. You know, those passages you skip over. It's like where God is describing to the artisans how he wants the temple done, right? Well, you know what it looked like? They were purple. They were about 40 feet high. They were held up with loops of gold, and they were embroidered with cherubim. All right, that's not a coincidence, folks. God don't do coincidence, all right? Cherubim are God's guardians. When he wants to keep someone out, they are created to create barriers 
to keep you from getting to Eden, the place where God was, the Holy of Holies, the place where God was. So we're excluded from his presence by angels you don't want to mess with. We've lost our access to God. But there's this story I'm telling you. That he came for us, that he looked for us, that he called for us, that he makes us enemies with Satan, that he clothes us, that he promises a seed to save us. And my friends, that seed does come, and indeed he does battle with the serpent, and oh, he is bruised, and he is nailed to a cross without covering and God does not look for him. In fact, he calls to God to look for him, and God doesn't respond. He says, why have you forsaken me? But this rejected one crushes the serpent. And what happens when he does that? That veil of cherubim is ripped from top to bottom, and the guards are gone, and the barriers are gone. And who takes the place as gatekeeper to the presence of God? The seed of the woman himself. The Lamb of God. The bright morning star. And now our vision can no longer be, have to be filled with warrior angels with swords. They can rush forward in time to two angels sitting at the head and the foot of a tomb. And they don't issue scary words of warning. Instead, they say to Mary... Why do you look for the living among the dead? Because now Christ stands in the doorway to the presence of God. And he welcomes his children home. This is who he is. For those of you who don't know him, this is who he is. He is wild and he is alive and he is loving and he wants you. And to those of you who do know him, I take it back. I actually do have application of this sermon. You need to leave here today with an awareness that he wants you that badly. This badly. Why? I don't know. But this story in Genesis is just a foretaste of what he is willing to do to have you. How can we not more want to know him better? And how could we not more want to be just like him? Let's pray. Holy, majestic God, the creator and the redeemer, you who brought us into life and gave us everything, and yet though we turn from you, you work beautifully, creatively, relentlessly to bring us back to you. We don't know why but allow our hearts to be broken and also to exult in the joy of being sought after by the one who created all and being saved by the one who is the, the, the lion of Judah, the lamb who was slain, the seed of the woman. Thank you for your love that you won us. But let our deepest gratitude be one that we long for our hearts to be transformed that we may honor you and serve you and look like you. Thank you for your love. In Christ's name, amen.